Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms. And also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Avery. Avery is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry, and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. Today we have a new story and we have a new storyteller. I have the pleasure to welcome you, Mara, to Urban Stiga podcast. Hey, and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. My pleasure. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I just took some of my own advice from my work and spent time in nature. We, we know that that's really beneficial to children. And so I actually did the same thing. I took a walk outside and just saw the nature so I could be well prepared. Nice, nice. So it's it's really it's early in the morning, right? Because mm-hmm. where are you yeah, now? Which city or which state? Yes, <laughs> I'm in Boulder, Colorado, in the United States. And so Boulder is sort of a western state, although on the map it's almost in the middle of the country. Yeah. And it's very dry here, and we have beautiful Rocky Mountains behind us. So literally, my daily hike is to hike in the mountains. Nice. You have you're you're so busy, Mara. <laughs> so busy um and and sometimes work and home even overlap i um i was out for an anniversary dinner with my husband and i decided i should speak with the chef of the restaurant to get him involved in some of our work around trying to um get the word out about the work we're doing through this tiny diners program for yeah. our local restaurant week and by the end of the meal we had a free dessert and a plan to do social justice work around young people and food justice wow, um, wow. together. Wow, yeah. wow, wow. <laughs> You're maximizing all, every single minute. <laughs> yes. Yes. Awesome. So you're our storyteller. Let's start with you. How would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and what are you passionate about? Yeah. So again, my name is Mara and um, my whole career up until now has mostly been working with underserved children and families. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think I come from a family where social justice was really important. And I would hear stories from my great aunts and my grandmother about the marches they went to and about um, just how they would buck um, the, the norms of the day, you know, whether it was trying to push forward integration or uh, school teachers' rights or um, just a whole variety of things. And so all I knew is I wanted to be involved in social justice. Um, and over the years, that's looked like either creating uh, universal pre-kindergarten programs for underserved children, um, creating family centers where families could come onto a school campus and have all of their need met, needs met and also take a leadership role. Um, and now um, I co-founded Growing Up Boulder, which is Boulder's child and youth-friendly city initiative in 2009. So that's 13 years ago. And we were founded out of the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, and so that has been my most recent version of what I'm working on. Yeah, yeah. So what did you study like uh, as an academic Yeah, I studied psychology, so psychology undergraduate and then organizational psychology for my master's degree. Um, So I had intended actually to work with nonprofits to help them become more efficient and effective in their work. Um, But then my work kept bringing me back to more the direct service field with children and families. And so uh, and I realized how much I love that. So I still bring some of my master's degree in, but really um, I found my place with working with children and families. Cool. But was it like a specific moment when you decide, okay, I will focus on on, on children and cities? Or no, it's just like you follow the flow and then you're here. Yeah, I followed the flow and and it's kind of happened through various networking. And um, I, I will say that when I moved to Colorado, I had just moved from California. And at the time I had a one-year-old child and so I knew I wanted to be able to spend time raising her and do something 
career-wise that I loved. And when I heard this concept of UNICEF USA child-friendly cities, or uh, sorry, UNICEF child-friendly cities, I just thought it was amazing. I'd never heard the concept before. And at that time, there was no infrastructure in the United States to do this work because um, while internationally child-friendly cities were happening, um, anybody who was trying to do it in the US, US was doing it sort of on their own um, through the mm. best practices they could research and you know white papers, but um, there was no formal support. So yeah. we created our own structure for what child-friendly cities could look like here in Boulder, Colorado. Okay. And it was based on some work they'd also tried in Denver, I should say, for three years. So that yeah, really helped yeah. launch us. Yeah, but this this before like the you you read about the UNICEF Child Friendly City Initiative, right? You already made the f- framework and so on. Or- right. So I I mean before I came to Colorado, I had never heard of that. But when I came to Colorado, a professor I met, Willem von Vliet, introduced me to the framework and the concept of child friendly cities. And when I saw that, I said that has to happen in my city. I, I want it both for my own family because yeah. I really believe in it. Yeah. And I want it for all the other kids and families as well. So I was able to combine my own personal passion and my work passion to make it happen in my own community. Is, is it true, Mara, that like when you get kids, uh, you become extra passionate about the topic, like the child-friendly city? Is it true? I find it's true, but I don't want that to make people who don't have children think that they can't be just as passionate or add just as much. But I think I do have a different, a much deeper understanding of some of the issues of what it means to be a parent and to be navigating a city with a child. And just to give a very concrete example, something I might not have thought of before was trying to ride public transit. And in our local bus system, you're not allowed to keep your stroller open when you get on the bus. Okay, and you need, yeah. So yeah, you have to collapse it. Mm. Well, and of course, any parent knows that you stuff all of your belongings, <laughs> yeah. like three bags worth right <laughs> underneath the stroller. So if you have to collapse that no way, and yeah. have a toddler and another child on you, it's very hard to yeah. take public transit. So that was, and I've seen, um, for instance, in Germany, they allow you to get on the bus with the stroller fully open. And so it's those little differences yeah. that make a huge difference for for parents. Mm-hmm. So tell us more like about uh, UNICEF USA child-friendly city. Like tell us about, yeah. uh, what do you call it? Project or initiative or or tell us about this, the story. Basically. Yes. So, um, so when we were doing Growing Up Boulder for many years, I would call UNICEF USA, which is um, for those who don't know, there's UNICEF Global, which um, you'll often see um, helping with different emergencies around the world and helping coordinate that. And then there are local um, national committees. And so those are separate nonprofits that do work with UNICEF Global. I didn't know this when I first started out. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> so I w- did you know that? No idea. No. Yeah, no, I didn't yeah. <laughs> but, but this is relevant because what would happen is I'd call um, UNICEF USA every year or so and say, hey, we're doing this thing that the UN says they support. Could you please help support us? And the answer I would get would be, no, this isn't really something we work on. That child-friendly cities just doesn't happen in the US or we, we don't work on this. Mm. So when I did my yearly call in 2019, luckily there was a new person working there who said, Danielle Goldberg, who said, well, I don't know a huge amount about child-friendly cities, but we're looking into it and we want to start creating this in the US. Cool. So I jumped into gear and I <laughs> I sent her all the white papers from all the professors I had worked with and said, here, they've actually been researching this for 10 years and okay. waiting for someone to pay attention. Yeah. Literally, there had been a, a white paper written by um, the professor that's, that I worked with that said, like, here's what it could look like in the US. Um, and so um, she brought a lot of experts together and we she held a meeting in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, to start thinking with with a hundred other people about like what could this look like in the U.S. If you fast forward a little bit, UNICEF USA has now created this beautiful, comprehensive framework for child friendly city initiative recognition, and it's a very long process. Um, it's uh, between two to three years, and it's extremely comprehensive. Um, and so. Now, even though Growing Up Boulder has literally been doing the work um, 
for 13 years, and we actually do the work really, really well of hearing from young people and diverse young people. What we hadn't done as well is some of the framework that went around it to be even more comprehensive. And that's the piece we're going to bring in and meld together with the direct service work we've been doing. What was like what the, the, the main challenges before you, you like when you started in the beginning, mm-hmm. what challenges you, you were like, okay, this is going to be a big challenge for us? Yeah. Um, the first challenge was that we would hold after school action groups with our young people. So they would, um, they identified the topics they wanted to work on. And they would come sometimes to weekly meetings, or we'd set up other meetings where they could delve into those topics. And, and we did have a few young people who were very into it. But I found that um, it was a huge amount of time on our part. And we weren't reaching so many kids. And also, we were not reaching as diverse a group of young people as I had hoped for. So we really took a pause and we said, how can we do this so that we're really reaching more kids and and more kids who might not have the opportunity to participate because they have to care for little brothers or sisters or yeah or have an after-school job so we started going into schools and into after-school programs with underserved young people and that just helped us to blossom because then we had all sorts of young people who might not have chosen to think about affordable housing, who all of a sudden had really great ideas about it. And so that's really how we transformed. And um, now we have a lot of teachers and city departments and other communities that come to us asking for this work because they see the value in it. But you are, you work a lot like a, a, you're in touch with schools. Is there an infrastructure or you created that? Because I know it's, it's not we, easy like to bring yeah. something from outside to school. It's a really good question. It, I think so much of this is based on relationships and relationships take so many years to develop. So um, luckily, one of my colleagues is a former um, former teacher in our public school system. So she is really well networked and, and really well respected. And so when it came time of which teachers could we work with or who would be interested <laughs> yeah. in this, we pulled on our own networks um, to start with, and then word would spread. Mm. At the same time, just recently, our school district is starting to have a more formal partnership structure with partners, but that's only happened in the past year. So I would say this is really about building long-term relationships and using our own social capital to to, to Mm. meet people. Mm. But like, what does it mean for the US when you say a child-friendly uh, city like can you give us some elements that if we work on it so the the state will be more child friendly yeah well at least for us and of course every city has to determine what works best for them but what we have heard from our young people is it's a city that is more sustainable so young people are able to walk bike or take the bus to get places because most of them can't drive Um, And so it's very important for them to be able to get around safely. Um, It involves a lot of green and it involves nature and um, whether it's hearing from really young children, preschool age about wanting to have flowers and, and see animals nearby to our high school students who are often thinking about sort of climate, climate resilience and how do we work with that? Um, they really are thoughtful about how do we care for our world and all the beings that are living in it. Um, It involves living in a place where everybody has a home. Um, We hear that a lot from our young people. There's a large unhoused population in Boulder and our young people are incredibly aware of that and feel that it's very unjust to be living in a society where people are just sleeping on the streets. but it's also joyful and beautiful. You know, a, a child-friendly city has all these elements of play woven throughout every part of it um, and a lot of art as well. So I always say uh, I want to live in a child-friendly city personally. It doesn't matter if I have kids. I just like the city they built. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you believe that a city for children is a city for all? Absolutely. Yeah. And I see it. I see when when their ideas are implemented. I have seen how it can transform a space. Yeah. But do you have like a kind of a project that you work with as action plan? Yeah. So the way we have been choosing our work, and we have many projects every year that we work with, uh, we will meet with our city um, officials and uh, 
we work with the director of communication and engagement for the city. Okay. And so she will go to all the public facing departments and say, what topics would you like young people to give input on? And they'll, they'll send her their recommendations yeah. and we'll sit down with her and we'll say, okay, let's look at these, see which ones are most responsive to what we've heard from our young people, their interests. Also, what do we think, um, is doable in in the time we have with the mm. budget and staffing we have. And that's how we choose our projects. So for example, um, this year we're working on reimagining policing. Uh, we're, we've been involved for two years in this. So this is the last phase of, of policing. Um, we're working on what we're calling eco healing. So helping young people respond emotionally to the fires we've had. We've had a lot of fires in yeah, our community, yeah. but then also take collective action to actually ameliorate the situation. Um, we're working on nature connection. Um, so helping young people connect with nature in their own backyards mm -hmm. and right where they live and then actually building hope around nature. Um, and then we're also working on helping young people heal from um unfortunately, a horrible mass shooting that yeah. happened in our community. So we really touch every aspect mm -hmm. of a child's life. And how do you do that? Like you, you, you're you, in touch with a department that's responsible for like this topic or what do you call it? this? Um, yeah, I don't know, like a specific area. And then you bring the children together or how, how do you how do you yeah. package it? I'll give you an example because yeah. it can sound very um, lofty until you, you really explain the details. So for the eco healing work that we're doing this summer and fall, what we do is we first identify what are the goals of the project. And the goals are to help young people work through their feelings um, about the fires. The second is to help them learn more about how fires are both beneficial and problematic for the environment, and then help them take collective action to give, to give input or to make change. Um, and so what we've done is first we identify who do we want to make sure that we involve? Well, we want to involve different ages of kids, so preschool all the way through high school. Then we want to make sure we involve our Latinx community. We have a large um, Latino community here in Boulder, so we want to make sure we're hearing from young people from that community. We want to hear from kids with disabilities. So we identify who are our partners who are serving each of these areas. Then we reach out to the partners and it's a lot of back and forth, a lot of scheduling. Uh, and we go visit them and we do engagements with their kids. And this can range from a one-time engagement. Um, we just did one recently up in the mountains for two hours with a group of Latinx high school students, um, all the way to an entire semester project um, where we work with English language learner teachers we present the beginning and the ending of the project, and then they understand the topic and they implement it throughout. And we help them find experts too to bring into their classroom. And then in the end, our kids always share out with decision makers their views and have a dialogue. And we always create a report that decision makers and policy makers can take and refer back yeah. to. How is, how is the reaction of the like now we have also like behind the scenes, we have the parents, the schools, how, first of all, like how is the reaction of, of the decision maker when you like hand in the report, they say, oh, wow, or no, they, they don't really pay attention to this. Well, I think it helps that we usually bring them into the room before we give them the report. Okay. So there is nothing more powerful, and I'm sure you know this from your work, <laughs> of getting an adult in a room with a kid and especially a young person who spent a lot of time on a topic and is very well versed and having them talk together. And we literally have heard from our city council, from our staff, from, from others in the community, their favorite work in their career has been interacting with our yeah. young people. And so, so they do that first. And then the report is there as a backup. And, and what we find is, um, we also try and make the report very accessible. So we put the summary of findings right at the yeah. beginning. So if you're not having time or attention to, to spend on it, you can just read that beginning. Yeah. Um, and we'll also present on it. So we try and um, find multiple ways of communicating what the yeah. kids have said. And and, and the, re the reaction of parents, because I guess if in order like to speak with the children or to have workshops, you need to have the agreement of with school and with their parents. Do you, do you like get in touch with their parents or no? The school is the face of parents. 
So if we're working with the school, we really don't necessarily yeah. get in touch with the parents. Although on a good day, we will write a letter to the parents so that they're aware of the work their kids are doing. I mean, in an ideal world where we had enough staffing, we would absolutely engage the parents. We'd have a whole other component yeah. there, but we just don't have the staffing for that. Um, having said that, I do get some beautiful messages sometimes from um parents whose kids have been involved who said how powerful it was for their young people. Um, and occasionally we will have separate parent engagements, but mostly it's just focused on the kids. And occasionally there does need to be permission. Like mm. for example, um, you know, we've been working on, on the healing and the, and the trauma from the mass shooting that certainly we got parental permission for, because we want to make yeah. sure the parents are aware of, of the work we're doing. Yeah. And like, what are, you, what are you, in your opinion, the key to make all this process works? What are the key elements? I think it always goes back to relationship okay. um, and, and transparency. Mm. Um, I think we just try and keep an open line of communication uh, between all of our partners. We try and co-create our work. So our best projects are when the teacher or the um, after-school counselors are involved in giving us feedback before we actually do the work with their kids. The times that doesn't work as well have been when the person was too busy mm -hmm. and they said, you just do it your own way and, yeah. and we've done it. And then it didn't, wasn't a good fit for them. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't want to overtax the teachers, but on the other hand, we do need a certain amount of input yeah. to make it authentic and re responsive to their group of kids. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, you know, we just try and, be very frank of whatever we're working on. We want them to know where we are in the process. We want to know, tell them what we can promise and what we can't. I can't promise that the system is going to change. What I can promise is that I'm going to do my best yeah. to carry your ideas forward and not let them fall away, even 10 years later. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when, and Mara, when you say like co-creating, because when it comes to like community engagement, children, it's, it's like co-creating is a very important element in, in the story, in the process. But sometimes we don't really trust, like we, we like as a, now I'm talking from urban planning and architects, like we like to control and just to make sure that things going to work in the end. So what is your advice to us that we don't really give so much space for co-creation? Like how can we just let things go and, and trust, you know, like trust the other part? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's something we all struggle with, with that tension and for our own selves. Because even when we were first forming the model for growing up older, I would struggle with that of how do we authentically hear from young people and not overly influence them and basically get them to be saying what we want them to yeah, say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, but also while recognizing that a 10 year old may not know what is even possible. So the conclusion we came to, and it seems to work well, is we start out by presenting the framework. This is what we're going to work on. And, and here's why your voice matters. And here's what's going to happen. And then we capture the kids' ideas before we can influence them. So we might have them build something or have them take photographs or have them draw something and label it. And so we're capturing their ideas before we've shared our own views. Then we'll say, okay, now we need you to do some more research. And this is more a longer term process. We have more flexibility when we have a whole semester. And so the kids will go out and do their own research and we can point them to some areas that we've seen of great examples, but they also might find their own. And then they come back and they also figure out what questions they have and interview experts in the area. And we can help them find the experts like um, city commissioners. Um, and then finally, they integrate their original ideas with new ideas to create a synthesis. And that's what they share out. And so usually by that point, it's sort of gone from the extremely expansive ideas that are maybe very impractical to somewhat more practical or at least well thought out ideas. Did it happen that you got some ideas that completely not matching with what you've you thought and and like the guidelines for the project that you'd be like okay what should we do now yes i mean i just had this the other night where um we were working on this eco healing work and we really were thinking about ways of telling the story of fires and and what fires are like for the environment and for the people and the animals but the one group i was working with just 
became obsessed with the idea. We had talked about public spaces, so they made a stage and an outdoor theater. Now, is that directly relevant to what we were talking about? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, you could be using it, right, to tell the story. You have performances that explain it. And at the same time, it was their way of saying how they wanted to experience nature was to be in the middle of the woods and have this gorgeous, all naturally made amphitheater. I thought that was really creative and it's not what I would have predicted, but um, we can take that and pass that along. And then it's up to the decision makers of does that integrate into their final project? Yeah. Yeah. So now we talked about like the key elements to make the process uh, work. And what? how about the challenges that you're, you're facing, main challenges? Yeah, uh, there are a number of different challenges. One that's almost a little funny is uh, when we're working with teens, particularly for out of school time, it is just incredibly time consuming to try and find times that work and that, and getting responses from teens. So often the intention is there, but then the follow through is a little bit harder. So we've learned we almost need someone full-time dedicated just to communicating over text with our young people. They don't respond to emails. So text is what we need to do. Um, other challenges are the funding. This is one of the hardest pieces for us. In the US, we, at least my experience has been, people are not aware of or understanding the holistic view of child-friendly cities or children's rights. And so when I have tried to apply for grants or talk to people in the public about funding a child-friendly city, it just doesn't resonate. It, I don't make progress. What I can make progress on is specific projects. Um, and so that is really the challenge that I've been in for a while is how do we still fund the, the basic organizational structure um, that you have to have an underlying structure to be able to do projects, yeah. but nobody wants to pay for that. Mm -hmm. And and how big how big is the team, by the way? Yeah, well, up until recently, it was literally just myself and our education director, both of us part time, and then we'd have undergraduate interns. Recently, because we have so many requests, um, and we know we're about to launch Boulder as a candidate child friendly city initiative with UNICEF USA. Um, we had the opportunity to bring on a few more people. So right now, everyone, like most people are, are very part-time and that means either five hours a week or 12 hours a week, other than myself and um, two other people. But um, we have eight people on and off who are working with us right now, um, which is both amazing because they are fantastic, very smart people in different ways. And it's really hard to manage so many people um, without that underlying infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you? Uh, so you work with this as a part time, right? Well, I I am paid for thirty hours a week, and I'm really working forty hours yeah. a week. So for me, it's full time. It's full time and for, for you. Yeah. Yeah, and for my colleague uh, Kathy, who's our education director, it's also full time. Mm. For everyone else, it is part time though. Yeah. Yeah. And what is like uh, the challenges on a personal level, like for you as a mayor, not for the organization, yeah. but for you? <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. It's interesting. I try and again, practice what I preach. So if I feel like eating foods from locally sourced from the garden, co cooking home cooked meals, if I feel like that is an important value I have for our young people, I'm trying to do that for myself too. And I'm highly aware that that actually takes a lot of time. And, and so actually one of the things I think a lot about is the expectations we have on our parents in this country. So I'm, I'm very envious of places like Sweden because you have the social infrastructure supports there. We simply do not, and we've created an impossible situation for parents. And I, I literally don't know any parents who are not stressed by the situation. And, and parents here, we tend to think it's our fault when in fact, it's that we don't have the infrastructure we need for childcare, for what do we do if our kid is sick, for after school um, programs, um, it just for healthcare, all, all of these things. And so um, it's something I'd love for us to get into as we roll out the full Child Friendly City Initiative project. Yeah, yeah, it'll be so cool, so good. So like, like be, be beyond this, uh, we talked about the mass shooting and so on. So how, how is it going? And what were like the initiative that you did about this? Yeah. 
Yes, for which for which piece? It's about like the 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 mass shooting in the, in the schools. Oh, sorry. the mass shooting. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I missed the keyword. Yeah, so that um, so we got a large grant from our local community foundation because what happened was they realized um, people weren't addressing the needs of children and youth. There were a lot of organizations looking at supporting adults, and we created um, with a group of 21 high school students, a healing day of remembrance um, for, for all the lost that, that's come about from this. And, but the key was we knew we needed a mental health specialist to work with us, and particularly someone who understands the intersection of multiple identities. So people's race and gender and sexual identity and how all of this layers with the trauma from local incidents. So we worked with our partner, Maya Soul Dancy, who uh, runs a consulting firm called My Emotion Healing. And before we even started the work on the young people planning the day, they learned how to take care of themselves. And they learned how to have certain healing activities for taking care of their own needs. And then once they had that toolbox, they were then able to think about, well, how do they want to share that toolbox with others and, and what should they share? And we've heard from our youth that it was incredibly healing for them to do this. And actually, it's very sweet. Some of them have already told us that they've used this to, to stop panic attacks, to deal with their stress. Like they've used this in their own lives and taught it to their little brothers and sisters. And then we were able to offer it to 200 people in the community through this healing day. And then we transferred it to another museum where more children and youth could access this exhibit, all the benefits from the exhibit that we did. Um, and we're going to keep working on it through yeah. the rest of the year. How, how is the situation now? Like, is still like children are in panic or no? They they start to understand how, how to protect themselves and how to, like, the awareness of this. You know, I think, I think mostly our young people and maybe ourselves do, we don't separate it out by you know, how do we deal with the shooting and how do we deal with the fires and how do we deal with that, the, the fallout from COVID? Mm. It's just these multiple layers of stress that are building upon our community. Um, and so I think it really varies, but I think a lot of young people are still pretty uh, traumatized from, mm. from the shooting. I know of kids who wouldn't go back to the supermarket. Um, there's just a lot of need to work through these issues. And we don't have systems in place that every single person can access all the time yeah. to yeah. do this. There, there are services out there, but a lot mm. of people don't know about them too. Um, so that's, there's a communication issue as well. What is for the, the plan for the, for the child-friendly city in the U.S.? Like, what is the plan for the coming years? How do you do, you do like three years plan or not like year by year? Um, it, it evolves, but there's a pretty structured plan of how it works. So there are six other cities in the U.S. that are already engaged in this, and I think we're going to be the seventh. And the other cities are, now, I may not remember them all, but Houston, San Francisco, Minneapolis, um, Johnson City, Tennessee, La Mesa, California, Prince George's County in Maryland. I might be I'm missing one, I think. Um, anyway, we follow a process where it starts with what's called a, well, first you create a memorandum of understanding between UNICEF USA and the government. But next what you do is you um, create a task force of young people and then leaders from different communities. So whether it's from the public health sector or from, um, you know, family support services, or just a whole variety of foster care, you bring everyone together. And then that task force helps you roll out the rest of it, which is a situation analysis where you're actually saying, like, what do the government indicators show about the status of young people? How is their health and well-being in our community? And then we'll go to the kids themselves and find out from them and from all ages and also from parents and service providers, how do you think we're doing like as a community on every factor regarding being a child? Based on all that data, we pull it together and then the task force decides what are the top three priorities that you want to work on? And then we set a local action plan with strategies for the next few years to say, okay, here's what we're gonna do to try and collectively as a whole community, improve the situation of children. And then we measure it again. And so that is 
a quick version of what child-friendly yeah. cities will look like. It's amazing, like a lot of work and and it's it's important that you you evaluate, right? You go back and mm -hmm. evaluate. This is very important. Yes. One of the things I'm trying to figure out is so so the actual process in itself, right, is an evaluation. It it's young people evaluating their own community. Yeah. But I'm also aware of how do we evaluate the process? Yeah, this is what I mean. Like it's like the, the adults evaluate the process of children evaluating there. <laughs> and I want the kids to evaluate it too. I want to hear yeah. back from the young people about what do they think of the process. So um I haven't seen huge numbers of questions around that. What I think we will probably do is ask one or two questions to our participants saying, you know, something like compared to before, do you feel like your voices is, is heard more, heard less, heard the same? Um, and, you know, what went well about this process and what would you improve? And so that's, we'll probably, we have to keep it really simple because after having had them spend an hour, an hour and a half evaluating all this other content, I don't want them to be so exhausted that they don't pay attention to the last question. Yeah. Do, do you have like a specific digital platform that you you have the community there somehow or no? Like how do you reach out to? to... Yeah, there communities have done it in a number of ways. Digital is certainly one way to do it. My preferred way for us to do it will be in person okay. um, and having meetings with the kids where you uh, actually print out the different evaluation questions or assessment questions on a giant piece of paper on the wall <laughs> and the kids get stickers. They've yeah. done this around the world in Haiti and um, different countries in Africa. They get stickers and they vote and then we have a discussion about yeah. it and the kids in real time tally up the votes to see what rises to the surface and they analyze it. So it's actually a really good math activity too. So I'm hoping the schools will let us yeah, do it yeah. there too. <laughs> Interesting. And I wish you all the good luck with the project and I will be happy to follow up after like we start and and uh, to listen. It's 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 important that you you share from your from your side so we here learn as well in Europe from from what you do. Thank you. Well, yes, and and you know Europe has really set the stage for a lot of this work. Um I think a lot of European countries have really been on the forefront of implementing child-friendly cities in that model. And it's also, um, I don't wanna say exclusive, but it's a very time-consuming undertaking. Um, and it doesn't, at least here, it doesn't come with any funding. So this is basically, we're taking on an entire new project, almost like a new organization without any funding. And so I have to raise money for that as well. Um, and so I, I think in Europe, though, my guess is that governments are probably more willing to support that yeah, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Like it's how to say, we kind of, because the thing that we started a bit earlier, so now the government start to understand. So it's like a question of time, you know, like maybe in two or three, or in a few years, like even your government's going to start to understand, okay. And I just want to give credit. I want to give credit because our government is dedicating $50,000 for next year to, um, child-friendly cities so they definitely are stepping up to the plate yeah. um and it's more a matter of that just the, the actual cost of this is so much yeah. more and that i need local foundations to to participate in it so i do want to give them credit of course yeah yeah i think it's uh, also the um, the local partners are the key like raising uh let's say money you say yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> Uh, awesome. So, and I would love to take the opportunity to ask you, like, I work with urban planning and uh, many listeners are urban planners here and also working with urban design. So in your, from, in your opinion, what should urban planners stop doing in order to plan and design a child-friendly city? Oh, what a good question. I don't, I don't know that it's about stop doing, it's what they should include in their, in their work. Um, I just think so often we're often in a rush and we're looking for expediency. And I think they're missing some of the nuances of what actually could make their properties or their locations more appealing and, and sort of more uh, sustainable in the long term. So for example, looking really hard at how are we weaving nature in to this space? that we're designing. Because what we learned from our young people is, you know, we talk about, in, in urban planning, we talk about 15 minute neighborhoods. But for younger children, 
um, it's more like a five minute neighborhood or even just what's on right there. So if we're not designing in spaces where our young people can hang out for free um, in green spaces right there, then we're missing a really valuable opportunity. Mm. Um, yeah, and we just need to also think more about truly having safe infrastructure to get places. So, um, you know, we it, it's great to have a bike lane, but if it's on a really busy road with no protection or barrier, a lot of kids are not going to feel safe biking there. So you have to think about those details. Yeah. And what skills you think are important for us in order to to work with children and to involve them in, in planning future cities? Yeah, I think being a really good listener, um, truly being an active listener um, and reflecting back some of what you've heard young people say. Um, but the other thing is a, a sense of um, calm and equanimity, not to be concerned when you hear ideas that seem outlandish. And, and let me explain. So, <laughs> you know, when you work with kids, you'll hear like, we want, I always remember this one from a middle school student. So maybe 11 or 12. I want to be dropped from an airplane um, down with a parachute and jump onto a trampoline. <laughs> right. And so a lot of adults, that just is terrifying yeah, like, to yeah. them. Like, what do I do with that? But the answer is you need to be listening to the to the themes underneath it. So what is that young person hoping to feel? Like what is the emotion or activity? They want to feel like that thrill in their stomach. They want something exciting and unusual. So okay, so you can't have a trampoline that you land on from a parachute <laughs> in the sky, but what you could do, could you create some sort of small trampoline? I've seen this in uh in Denmark, a little trampoline built into a bench. Or could you have something that they can climb up where they can get up high and, and still have that feeling of being up high and being able to look down on the area? What can create those thrill-seeking desires? And that's what you need to be looking for. Um, and that's when you can really be successful. Yeah. And how can we be an active listeners? Mm -hmm. Like what is yeah. the key to be an active listener? I think the key is to sort of... Um, once you've heard what a young person said, sort of repeat back, paraphrase back what you've heard. So what I heard you saying is that you really want to be able to um, jump high and, and have that, that thrilling feeling. Um, and, and I think, again, if adults can ask maybe about like, what is the underlying emotion or feeling in your body you're looking for? Um, what is it about this space that would bring you joy? What is it that you're concerned about? You know, I think those questions and really listening to their answers will help you be able to integrate the kids' ideas with what's doable yeah. within your work. Yeah. What do you think? I will like tell you two options and tell me which one you think is is the is the best. Uh, usually, okay. when we work here in Sweden and within urban planning project with children, sometimes we call some teachers and they do the workshops, and then we talk with the teachers. And then the other option that we do it directly with children. So which one you think is the best and why? Oh, I'm not going to give you the answer you want, which is no, I think both like, just are great. Like from your, from yeah. your perspective. Yeah, I think both are great and they get to different places because I think when you're able to have teachers take ownership of it, you really increase the capacity and the number of people who can do this sort of work and give input. And the key I think would be is getting back from the teachers and the students information that you can use. So for us, for example, we've created um, sort of a, a Google form where the teachers can fill out their main findings. Like what were the themes? What were some of the quotes you heard from the kids? And then we ask them to attach images or videos of what the kids did. So that's one way to hear from them. Certainly when we work directly with the kids, just for us, we have a much better understanding of what they're saying. Um, but I also think that level of control can be hard to maintain because then you become the bottleneck. If you're the only one who can do it, you yeah. can't hear from as many people. So we do a mix of those uh, things. Um, and I just think they each have their pluses and minuses. Yeah. <laughs> I Did, wouldn't pick. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a trick to find uh, an active and passionate teacher that willing to really go all in and give the energy yes well um a lot of times from the very beginning we'll 
we'll talk up front, we'll have a meeting up front about what it involves. And we actually have an agreement we've created so that both parties know what the expectations are. Um, The the worst thing is to have a teacher who doesn't want to be doing it or an after school provider who doesn't want to do it because then it's just a burden. But if the teacher is into it, they take it to an extraordinarily level, an extraordinary level. And we've seen this over and over again. So we also have certain teachers that we go back to. And in fact, they'll come to us and say, what project do you have for us this year? <laughs> um, and, and one of the most exciting things for us was during the pandemic, you know, when everything was online, at least here, um, some of our English language teachers, so teaching English language learners said that their real world work with growing up Boulder grounded the kids so much that they actually were able to accelerate in terms of their English language learning goals, whereas most other kids were falling more behind. Mm. And it was because the work was real. It wasn't just some made up textbook. And so um, for the people willing to put in the time and effort, it pays dividends, but it does take a little more time. Yeah. And uh, before we go to the next section of this episode, which is going to be about you, the last question is like, in order to make child-friendly cities what do we need to work on really hard now? Like future Um, cities, I mean. Oh, yeah. Gosh, we just need to be willing to slow down and be less, yeah, just be less impatient. You know, I find that so many people I know, you know, friends, family, colleagues, myself, we believe in these concepts of let's let's get out of our cars and and walk or bike or take the bus but then when we're in a rush right we I, i'll hop into my car and i i will say to urban planners make it harder for me to take my car like this won't be very popular <laughs> but like make it harder for me to take my car make it harder for me to buy a single family home but easier to live in a community with more dense housing that has beautiful community spaces and nature around it and is walkable and well-connected. When you force us to make change, we usually like it. And and you can see this with some of the work with like super blocks in Barcelona and other places. And even here in Boulder, I'll give a good example. In the 1970s, um, they wanted to turn this street in our downtown area into a pedestrian area. So block it off, no cars. And people fought it tooth and nail. The businesses said it's going to drive business. It's yeah. the worst thing that's ever happened. Well, that area is the most popular part of all of Boulder. Um, and so I just think people are going to fight what's good for them. But eventually, once you do it, they actually like it. <laughs> This is so true. Like it's it's almost everywhere. Like in every city, it's happened like this. You know, <laughs> everyone's yeah. against, and after you do it, oh wow, everyone loves it. I think it's human nature. That's that's what I've come to believe. It's human <laughs> nature, and sometimes we don't want to take our preventative medicine. So yeah, <laughs> it's hard. Yes, yes. And now the second section of this episode about you, because in this podcast we talk about the uh, cities for people and also about people behind project cities for mm. people so in 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 100 years from now when people gonna google your name mm. what would you like them to read about you oh that's a really great question i mean you're I famous want... you did the ted talk and so <laughs> yeah i want them to know that that it worked that that i was able to help elevate young people's voices and particularly those from marginalized communities. And through that work, those young people felt more heard and more respected, that they became more civically engaged, that we saw kids who otherwise wouldn't have been civically engaged saying, I wanna keep doing this. I wanna know that there are more cities that become child-friendly and boy, wouldn't it be amazing if some of this resulted in all over the world um, Cities that actually can continue for the future and not be overtaken by our fossil fuels and climate change mm. and um, and also by stress. Like, like I would love for to say, wow, it really made us rethink how we're living yeah. our lives and that we need to put more emphasis on the quality of our lives, not on the quantity of things we get done. Mm-hmm. Interesting. How was, how was your uh, TED um, talk experience? 
Oh, it was terrifying to prepare for. Um, by, by the way, I work as a speaker coach here in TEDx Stockholm. So, so you're familiar with it. Yeah, so it's, this is interesting what you're going to tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is I love being up on stage. That wasn't the part that I was worried about. The part I was worried about was the memorization. Yeah. Because it, at least for our TED ver, TEDx version, which I think most are, you know, you're supposed to memorize it, but you also wanted to look comfortable and familiar. And so for me, it was just really hard to memorize. Um, so I would, I would be <laughs> practicing in the shower. I'd be practicing as I yeah. fell asleep at night. Um, I will tell people the thing I found most helpful was recording myself mm. doing my talk and then listening to it and trying yeah. to talk along with it. Yeah. Is that what you tell people? Yeah. Too? Yeah. We, we use this like mirror exercise, like um, record yourself and, and watch it. And then it's going to be the material you work on. Yes. Um, one of the pieces of coaching advice that I received, which I loved and I've given to others and have found that it's helped. Um, so my coaches said, um, you look so uptight during it. Why don't you try and remember this is a fun topic and to, to relax and enjoy it. And once they said that, it made perfect sense. But I was concentrating so hard, I'd forgotten to <laughs> feel the joy of yeah. the topic and so i started to embody that and just even smiling as i was talking and that really changed everything and made it i think a much better talk yeah um but i also have to say you know the the tedx experience i worked really hard and i feel lucky that the day that i recorded a that it hadn't been COVID yet. So I had a live yeah. audience. I feel so grateful for yeah. that but b it just i was able to give a smooth talk and you know, I think you can only control so much. So I'm lucky it worked out that way. But I also know some TEDx speakers who um, fumbled a bunch and they had had excellent talks. So some of it's luck of that day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, but so it's, it's, it's about preparation. It's only about preparation. Yeah. Yes. Luck is, is preparation. So like yeah. it's, <laughs> if your talk is good, it means that you prepare very, very, very good. Yes. Yeah. And I had fabulous coaches who really helped me hone in on the story and, and think about, you know, which pieces were, how do we tie this together in a way that people can really understand it and be excited by it. Uh, and then, of course, um, when it was picked up by Ted on their homepage, I almost passed out when I literally <laughs> I just so, sit down when I found out. It's a big thing, you know, super big thing. Like, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. It was such a big thing. And that really has had the most incredible repercussions because now I get emails every other week from around the world, whether it's from a kid, a city planner, <laughs> an elected official, uh, a parent saying, how do we do this in our community? And so that gives me great hope. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. So if you, if you, if you will have the chance to give another TEDx talk, what will you talk about? Like, is there an, a niche or a specific topic this time? So I have thought about this, not, but I actually don't want to give another talk, but the talk Why, I on. would give, oh, so stressful. Maybe, <laughs> maybe if I recover, maybe in a few years, too stressful. <laughs> when though. you retire. Now, then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I retire. Actually, no. So what I really, um, well, one of the things I'd love to give a talk on is, um, there, there are two things. One is understanding how a holistic approach or a whole child approach is more effective than the siloed approaches that we use and that um, foundations and funders really need to start thinking that way. Because I hear a lot of foundations, in the US, a lot of funding for nonprofits or NGOs comes from foundations. And I hear them saying, we need to get out of our silos. And yeah, everyone is to... saying this. Yeah, but they're not doing it. <laughs> and, um, and so um, I think until we can do that, we're not going to create systems change. It, it, they're too complex, but collective action approaches, I think, do work. And that's what child-friendly cities is. And so I would love the day when um, people can say, yeah, we, we're, we recognize that you can't divide a child or a family into five separate pieces and only address one. You need to look at all of them together. So true. So true. Hopefully you will, you will do that. You just need to like, you know, book some in your, in your calendar. <laughs> Can I tell some. you the other TEDx talk I would yeah. give? <laughs> <laughs> the other one is um, a little bit about what I said earlier is that in the US, we are asking our parents to do the impossible. And that is why there's a constant 
um, state of stress amongst parents of all income levels. And that until we acknowledge as a country that the systems need to change around parents and families, um, we're going to keep continuing that yeah. stressful situation. Yeah, this is like, th th this topic is very, very important, actually. I mean, do you feel, I, I, it's curious, I, I don't know if these discussions happen as much in Sweden because you do have more in place to support families. Yeah, like for, for us now we are talking about how do we even make it better. Yeah. Yeah, so because like we passed the first, you know, level that we created this kind of infrastructure. Now it's about, okay, how do we make it better? Yes, yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, you're never done, right, with any of this. It's always... No, it's always like you make it better and yeah. Um, yeah. Great. So next question is about you naming one project that you're really proud of. Oh, there are so many. Um, let me think. I'm trying to think which. <laughs> well, there, okay. So one project that I think is a lovely project because it shows from beginning to end how young people can have a voice is the one that I talked about in my TEDx talk about the civic area. Um, and so again, this is a park in downtown Boulder and um, it, it needed to be changed for a whole number of reasons. Well, what's very special is that my office now is at the Boulder Public Library, which is where the civic area is. And literally every day, on my on my walk to work, I walk past what 225 young people gave input to. So there's an entire play area that's all nature play with water and trees and flowers. They've restored the habitat as young people asked for. Wow. You can enter into the creek more gradually and it's less dangerous because young people asked for that. And so all of these things came from our young people. Oh, there's also a biking um, and walking path that are separated out. And I get to walk past that every day and see the kids <laughs> and parents with so much joy there. Wow. And occasionally I can't help myself and I'll stop and I'll tell them, you know, <laughs> these ideas came from kids like you yeah. and the kids are just blown away. So that's really very special. That's so nice. But I also am super duper proud of the work that we're doing with young people to help them take care of their emotional well-being um, in the face of trauma and tragedy and that we continue to do. And I'll have to send you this beautiful photo. Um, from the eco-healing work, we wanted to assess how young people were feeling after they had done the work, because we know we actually learned very early on that when we started showing them pictures of the fires or talking about fires, they actually got really activated. And some of the kids, we felt terrible. They, they had headaches and they were really upset. So we were actually re this only happened once, but there was a re-traumatization. We said, no, we can't, we can't do that. We're not even going to ask how they feel at the beginning because we know that fire makes them feel stressed. But we can ask how they feel at the end after doing this project. So one of our team members said, why don't they write how they feel on their hands after, and you know, washable marker. And so we have that. And the words are joyful, grateful, uh, excited, inspired, wow. and it's working. That's so beautiful. It's really working. Yeah, I'll have nice. to send you the photo. Yeah, yeah, it. do that. So now name one thing that you regret, something you did in your career and when you look back, you regret. Um, there is one project that I regret how we approached it. Um, we were working with Latinx young young people, and we were getting their input on this idea that came from some older white men about what they wanted, a piece of art that they wanted in the community. And it was just such a huge disconnect. Um, and I feel like it didn't serve our young people well um and the but but again it actually was it i always try and learn from anything that doesn't go well and my takeaway was that the coordinator director of the program for the young people didn't sit down with us to co-create it and and because of that we sort of missed the mark on what her young people needed okay mm. yeah but i also think it speaks to the need to have people from a community co-create mm. the work and so um We've always had the intention to do it, and only recently have we been able to to hire someone. But we just hired three Latinx people from within our community. One is a young person herself who's worked with us. Um, the other just got her master's in education, and then the third 
um, is a sociologist who has lived in our community for six years. And I feel like with them on board, we're going to have fewer of these mistakes Mm. because they're co-creating with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Yeah. And with all the busy schedule, do you have hobbies or do you have time for your hobbies? I I do, you know, a few things. One is spending time with friends. Um, and l- luckily, this is what I love about my community. There is a culture here of getting together. When you get together with friends, sometimes you go to a coffee shop, but a lot of times you go for a hike mm. or even for business meetings. And so I routinely get all the things I love in one spot. So I get to do a hike in nature. So I get exercise. Yeah. I get to be in beautiful nature and I get to be with a friend. Um, and that is so special yeah. to, to do that all the time. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is recently I took up crocheting. Um, I taught myself, well, my daughter who's 15 helped me learn a little bit of how to crochet and I love it, but I just don't have all the time I want to do that and reading and listening yeah. to podcasts and <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what is your what is your daily routine? Like when do you wake up? What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wake up at seven and then I spend a lot of time in bed trying to catch up on the news and also um uh, being in touch with friends from college, just seeing what they're up to, <laughs> um, looking through my emails. Then ideally after having breakfast and spending a little time with my family, I try and get in some sort of movement. Um, whether it's yoga or or a hike or working out. And then um, sometimes I go into the office. We yeah. have team days and other days we work from home. And every day is so different. So um, I might be doing a lot of networking meetings where I'm meeting with people in the community who want to be involved in some way. Um, I also have a lot of meetings with my team. Um, and you would just have lots of meetings, but it's funny. Um, all of our meetings, I love. Like when I talked to my husband, he said, oh, I have another meeting. It's terrible. <laughs> when I have meetings, I say, these are the yeah. best. I love these meetings because we're doing the most creative, yeah. meaningful work. And so it's really energizing. Mm-hmm. But do you work from home or no, you have office now? We have an office at the library, um, which has been donated um, by our library because we contribute so much to the community and support their work too which is huge because yeah yeah library uh, rental space here is very expensive Mm -hmm. for an office i can imagine we're kind of outgrowing it so i'm not sure what we're going to do about that but (laughs) we'll just yeah we'll just all pile in for now yeah (laughs) um but yeah so we go into the office about three days a week and then the remaining days i work from home Mm. um and you know I, i will say with covid and i think this has affected everyone it's very disruptive. So for instance, we have all these meetings planned and one of our team members just came down with COVID and then exposed other team members, which is not anyone's fault. It's just the world. And Mm. so we may have to cancel meetings for the next week. So it's, it is hard sometimes, but um, that's just the world we live in right now. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. And now we are in the final section and it's about you giving messages. So the first question, three questions. The first one is that you give a message to yourself. To myself? Yes. Remember that I'm in this for the long haul and that change takes time, but it's always, you know, this effort has always paid off and it will pay off and we will get there, but it just takes a very long time. Yeah. And three messages to our listeners. Okay, one is to start small. Um, Don't feel like you have to do it all at once because, um, you know, perfect is gonna be the enemy of of good. Just just do it well enough um, and and test things out. Actually, yeah, so that's the first one to start small. Pick a project and some champions who you think will be into whatever the project is and just start there and then build from there. The second part is to iterate to learn from mistakes and assume that mistakes will happen but the key is what you do when it happens and to also give yourself some tender loving care when you make that mistake because for those of us in this field we tend to feel very passionately and it's really hard not to get everything right and that's not realistic and then this third message is to hopefully have build joy and fun and humor into the work our team just we have so much joy we have so much 
love and passion. And um, that's why we keep coming back. That's why we're willing to do this work in spite of the frustrations yeah. is, is the joy. Yeah. I'm so happy to hear you. You're so positive. I'm, I'm happy to, to, to hear your takeaway messages. And the last question in this episode, it's yeah. about you asking it to us. What is your question to me and to our listeners? If you had one suggestion for us in the U.S. or in my community embarking on child-friendly cities, what would you suggest based on your experience? We're always learning from the wisdom of others around us. And so I would love, I would love to hear from you, Mustafa. Like what would your one suggestion be, you know, to wish us on our way? Yeah, I will think about an answer and email you the answer. Okay, good. <laughs> and then we can share it with the listeners too, so they get yes. to benefit from your wisdom. Yes, yes. Thank you so much again for giving your valuable time. I'm really happy that we have this conversation and I will be more than happy to follow up your work and do even more uh, other episodes as well. You're welcome. Thank you for having me and sharing with your listeners. Well, thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. You learned something new and also got inspired by the guest. Don't forget to share the episode on your social media and recommend it to people you think they are really interested in this topic. Thank you so much again for giving your valuable time to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif. Keep up the good work. Keep loving cities.